with conservative parties steering both the British and American political agenda, there was no shortage of real-life bad guys for society to face in the 1980s. And perhaps inevitably, this had a direct effect on the kinds of villainy we saw emerge across popular culture. In the UK, Margaret Thatcher's Tory party had already sent the Labour government packing in 1979, relegating them to the role of opposition party, where they'd stay for another 18 years. And in the US, Ronald Reagan's Republican campaign had taken a decisive victory over Jimmy Carter's Democratic opposition in the 1980 presidential election, giving him the first two terms as Commander-in-Chief. Both leaders had a number of shared goals, one of which was boosting their respective economies and encouraging growth through competitiveness, deregulation and lower taxation for businesses. Other shared political themes included a greater focus on family values, a greater emphasis on nationalism and greater reliance on militarism, creating a sense of separatism that seemed at odds with some of the bigger international partnerships and treaties that had been established by both countries in the years prior. The special relationship between Britain and America may have been stronger than ever, but Reagan's cynicism about the role of the US in the United Nations was just as strong as Thatcher's scepticism about its still relatively fresh partnership with Europe. I am the first to say that on many great issues, the countries of Europe should try to speak with a single voice. I want to see us work more closely on the things we can do better together than alone. Europe is stronger when we do so, whether it be in trade, in defence, or in our relations with the rest of the world. But working more closely together does not require power to be centralised in Brussels or decisions to be taken by an appointed bureaucracy. Indeed, it is ironic that just when those countries, such as the Soviet Union, which have tried to run everything from the centre, are learning that success depends on dispersing power and decisions away from the centre, there are some in the community who seem to want to move in the opposite direction. On both sides of the Atlantic, there was a renewed sense of national pride, with the UK Prime Minister looking to put as much distance between Britain and Europe as possible, and the US President promising to make America great again. I know, we've come a long way. And as is always the case, where you have a constant stream of patriotic soundbites, international scapegoating and xenophobic rhetoric coming from those in power, it can be a valuable source of fuel for those on the far right. In the UK, after a failed attempt to rejuvenate his party in 1980 with a new name, National Front leader John Tyndall founded the British National Party, a group that would attempt to insert itself into the political conversation around Thatcher's anti-immigration policies. And in America, the KKK had begun the decade with an initiation rally that led to the shooting of four elderly black women in 1980, as well as the lynching of 19-year-old Michael Donald in Alabama just one year later. The conservative right was centre stage in government, and the far right was happily riding in on its coattails. But what this did is create an opportunity for the left to do what it does best during times of political marginalisation, create art that challenges and criticises these ideals and also create villains obsessed with wealth and their own political or financial gain. Villains who are happy to oppress and exploit the lower classes and carelessly trample the poor underfoot. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Now, of course, the most obvious movie villain of this kind here is Wall Street's Gordon Gecko. Character Ben Dickens describes in his 2006 book, Hollywood's New Radicalism, as someone whose ruthless and uncompassionate pursuit of personal gain is a reflection of life in President Ronald Reagan's America, as director Oliver Stone saw it. But Dickens says that while Gecko is a very clear illustration of villainy in Reagan's America, He's also something of a rarity, noting that Wall Street was an uncommon example of cinematic anti-Reagan resistance 
in a decade where powerful multimedia corporations, run by men not too dissimilar from Gordon Gekko, became the dominant force in Hollywood. He goes on to say that in the late 1970s, 20th Century Fox had itself been acquired by exactly the kind of man Gordon Gekko represented. Marvin Davies, who made his millions buying up companies and reorganizing them for profit, took ownership of Fox with his financial partner Mark Rich in 1981. And true to form, one of his first moves at Fox was to start selling off parts of its global business, reducing its film output by a quarter and focusing production on the much cheaper options that home video presented. Davis was a man who had no problem streamlining the businesses he owned by selling off chunks, while also cutting down the workforce and looking for ways to save money. The very same template Gordon Gecko was using in Wall Street. I just found out about the garage sale down at Blue Star. Why? Last night I was reading Rudy the story of Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Pot. You know what happened. Stuck his nose in the pot once too often got stuck. Maybe you ought to read him Pinocchio, Gordon. I thought that you were going to turn Blue Star around, not upside down. You fucking used me. Well, you're walking around blind without a cane, pal. Fooling his money are lucky enough to get together in the first place. But why do you need to wreck this company? Because it's wreckable, all right? I took another look at it and I changed my mind. If these people lose their jobs, they got nowhere to go. My father has worked there for 24 years. I gave him my word. It's all about bucks, kid. The rest is conversation. But while Dickens sees Gecko as something of a rarity, the broader idea of corporate villainy was pretty rife in the films of the 1980s. In 1983's Trading Places, Randolph and Mortimer Duke take great pleasure in using their corporate power to destroy the life of Dan Aykroyd's Lewis Winthorpe by toying with the less commercially valuable life of Eddie Murphy's poor and uneducated Billy Ray Valentine. Given the right surroundings and encouragement, I'll bet that that man could run our company as well as your young Winthorpe. Are we talking about a wager, Randolph? I suppose you think Winthorpe, say if he would lose his job, would resort to holding up people on the streets? No, I don't think just losing his job would be enough for Winthorpe. I think we'd have to heap a little more misfortune on those narrow shoulders. If he lost his job and his home and his fiancée and his friends, if he were somehow disgraced and arrested with the police and thrown in jail even, yes, I'm sure he'd take the crime like a fish to water. You'd have to put him in the wrong surroundings, of course, with the worst sort of people. I mean, real scum, Randall. We've done it before. This time it's in a good cause. In 1985's Brewster's Millions, a rich old white man leaves his distant nephew, Richard Pryor's Monty Brewster, $30 million, which he needs to spend in 30 days without breaking a number of rules, just to inherit a full estate of $300 million as part of some sick abuse of money and power dressed as teaching poor people a lesson. Let me tell you a little story, Brewster. When I was seven years old, my daddy caught me smoking a cigar. Locked me in the broom closet for three days and three nights with nothing but a box of cigars and a book of matches. No food, Brewster. No water, just those goddamn cigars. Wouldn't let me out until I finished every last one of them. Taught me one hell of a lesson. I'm going to do to you what my daddy did to me. I'm going to teach you to hate spending money. I'm going to make you so sick of spending money that the mere sight of it will make you want to throw up. From the technological genius responsible for the design and build of mankind's replicant slaves in Blade Runner. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. To the developer who wants to bulldoze the community recreation center in Breakdance 2, Electric Boogaloo. The property values in that area are just going to take off. And that building that the kids are in, well, <laughs> that has got to go. The soulless businessman who is blind to humanity thanks to the sheer opportunity of Reagan's America is something of a staple of 1980s cinema. But while these characters are often a singular evil for our heroes to overcome, a lot of the time, it's the bigger, faceless corporations they represent that are the real enemy. Blade Runner's Tyrell Corporation, Short Circuit's Nova Robotics, Robocop's OCP, and the Whaling yutani Corporation of Aliens. All are examples of massive companies who represent Reaganite greed going completely unchecked 
in a deregulated corporate world. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Fucking A. Oh, hold on, hold on one second. This installation has a substantial dollar value attached to it. They can bill me. Okay, look. This is an emotional moment for all of us, okay? I know that. But let's not make snap judgments, please. This is clearly, clearly an important species we're dealing with, and I don't think that you or I or anybody has the right to arbitrarily exterminate them. Come on. Yeah, watch us. Hey, maybe you haven't been keeping up on current events, but we just got our asses kicked, pal. Look, I'm not blind to what's going on, but I cannot authorize that kind of action. I'm sorry. But it wasn't just the capitalist focus of the UK and US that provided a means to create identifiable baddies on screen during the 1980s. US foreign policy throughout the decade was focused on combating communism, ending the Cold War and taking military action wherever necessary to show the might of America as a world power. This meant that good old homegrown US villains were out, and sneaky untrustworthy foreigners were in. I'm afraid for my husband's life. We have threats of violence everywhere. We are not politics. All I want is for my husband to be safe, to be treated fairly. You call him a killer. He's a professional fighter, not a killer. You have this belief that you are better than us. You have this belief that this country is so very good and we are so very bad. You have this belief that you are so fair and we are so very cruel. It's all lies and false propaganda to support this antagonistic and violent government. Oh, violent? Hey, we don't keep our people behind a wall with machine guns. Who are you? Who am I? I'm the unsilent majority, Big Mouth. Good. Yes, good. Insult us. This more typical rude behavior toward visiting foreigners. But perhaps this simple defeat of this little so-called champion will be a perfect example of how pathetically weak your society has become. The idea that the Soviet Union in particular was plotting and scheming to infiltrate America and start inflicting its terrifying communist ideals upon its people was particularly present. The UK's continued obsession with World War II kept us stocked up on German baddies for a whole host of Bond films, but in the US there were Russian villains cropping up everywhere. And whether they were here to take Rocky Balboa's championship title, or they were here to take the whole country, the overriding message was, they were here. This is the emergency broadcast system. We are under attack by conventional forces of the Russian army. It is believed the lead waves were disguised as commercial charter flights. Communications have broken down other parts of the country. Large areas of the Midwest may have been overrun. They know who all of you are. They're looking for you. You're 40 miles behind enemy lines. I just want to go home. They took a lot of people away. Where's my dad, Mr. Eckert? One of us loves somebody, Andy. I'm gonna die before it happens. George! They're gonna kill us! Stop us! So why should we be different? Because we live here! What Red Dawn did was take an existing fear of communist Russia and amplify it by having it as part of an invading coalition that also included Cuba and Nicaragua, two of America's most prominent enemies at the time. It was an illustration of everything Reagan was warning against throughout his first term and was reflected in his 1985 State of the Union speech which would come to be known as the Reagan Doctrine. We must stand by all our democratic allies and we must not break faith with those who are risking their lives on every continent from Afghanistan to Nicaragua to defy Soviet-supported aggression and secure rights which have been ours from birth. Of course, rich businessmen and foreign threats are by no means exclusive to 1980s popular culture. Across film and television, those with money and power have always sought to keep heroes down. Likewise, the mysterious characters from overseas with strange customs and ideologies have always been able to arouse our suspicions. But what the decade does give us is a greater emphasis on why these characters are a threat. 
Corporations never had our best interests at heart, but now they have more power and the backing of our government to do as they please. Foreigners have always been a threat too, but now they're in our backyards trying to take away our goddamn freedom. Outside of film, television had one of its most hated villains in J.R. Ewing, the ruthless self-serving oil baron of TV's Dallas, as well as a countless stream of greedy landlords, vicious landowners, condo developers and shady businessmen that rubbed up against everyone from the A-Team to Cagney and Lacey on a weekly basis. Even in comics, everyone's favourite rich businessman Bruce Wayne had returned as the Dark Knight in a much more violent and brutal way thanks to Frank Miller. And in 1986, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' groundbreaking series Watchmen showed how ultimate power, military might and political corruption could be a terrifying mix even in the most fantastical context of superheroes. And with this kind of fictional terror steeped in real-life events and public fears keeping us all awake at night, what did that mean for the more traditional supernatural monsters whose job it had been in decades past? He has walked through centuries, untouched by time. He has seen empires rise and fall. He possesses the wisdom of the ages. When it comes to what we call the classic monsters of film, television and literature, and for that matter some of the weirder B-movie creatures of the 1950s like the Blob and the Body Snatchers, the 1980s gave us some reinterpretations to enjoy. But it isn't really widely regarded as a celebrated time for that kind of thing. Unlike previous decades, which seemed to take a more traditionally gothic, romantic or sometimes scientific approach to contextualising its mythical antagonists, the 1980s was fixated on modernising its evil offerings. In The Changing Vampire of Film and Television, a critical study of the growth of a genre, Tim Kaine points to one film in particular though that took the familiar gothic, romantic and sexual elements of the vampire film and used them to create something new and exciting for the home video generation. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't have a nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. Fright Night. If you love being scared, this could be the night of your life. 1985's Fright Night tells the story of Charlie Brewster, a suburban teenage B-movie horror fan who discovers a yuppie vampire named Jerry Dandridge has moved into the house next door. When no one believes him, Charlie turns to Peter Vincent, a washed-up actor using his former fame as a Hollywood vampire killer on late-night TV, for help. Mr. Vincent! Mr. Vincent, could I talk to you for a minute? Please, Mr. Vincent, it's very, very important. What do you want me to sign? Pardon me? What, you do want my autograph, don't you? No. No, sir, I was curious about what you said last night on TV, you know, right? about believing in vampires. What about it? Were you serious? Oh, absolutely. Unfortunately, none of your generation seems to be. What do you mean? I have just been fired because nobody wants to see vampire killers anymore, or vampires either. Apparently, all they want are demented madmen running around in ski masks, hacking up young virgins. At first, Vincent is sceptical, but when the traditional rules of vampire mythology prove Charlie is telling the truth, the pair team up to take Jerry down and save suburbia. As noted by Kane, Fright Night is a film that is largely populated by teenagers, with a focus on sex and virginity, which can be seen as a pretty clear attempt to ape the teen horror flicks of the day. However, it's also worth noting that through Peter Vincent, the film managed to keep one foot in the past, and is in fact reliant on his knowledge, as well as Charlie's passion for old horror movies, to progress the story, confirm the threat, and resolve the narrative. What's wrong with you? Nothing. 
Then why are you shaking? I, I'm not shaking. You saw something in there, didn't you? You saw something that convinced you he was a vampire. Of course not. Please, Mr. Vincent, you have to tell me. Our lives depend on that. All right. He didn't cast a reflection in my mirror. Satisfied now? Mr. Vincent, you have to call the police. Mr. Vincent, shit! Interestingly, this strange dichotomy of postmodern and traditional gothic aligns with some of Kane's other, broader theories about vampire cinema in popular culture at that time. Namely, that the genre on film exists across a number of cycles, with the 1980s split right down the middle in the same year that Fright Night was released. Kane suggests an erotic cycle, which tracks back to 1957 and ends in 1985, as well as a sympathetic cycle, which picks up in 87 and runs to 2006 when the book is published. That erotic cycle, which begins with Hammer releases such as The Horror of Dracula and sets out many of the visual and thematic tropes the genre would rely upon for decades, is absolutely present in Fright Night. In Jerry Dandridge, the film offers us a smooth, sophisticated vampire that's not only a physical threat to Charlie, but an emotional one too. And just like those traditional gothic depictions of Dracula, Jerry seems able to magically seduce his female victims. And having taken a vested interest in Charlie's girlfriend, Amy, we have a hero that's emasculated, who turns to the one thing that's supposedly been keeping him in a state of arrested development up until this point, a love of old, dated horror movies. It's an idea that's set up in the film's opening scene, where we find Charlie pressing for sex with a reluctant Amy as an old horror movie plays out on TV. Charlie, I'm ready. Amy, you're not going to believe this. There are two guys out in the yard, and I think they're carrying a coffin. We have pledged ourselves to evil. Sure. And they're on the moors, right? Amy, I'm serious. So am I. Do you want to make love or not? Amy, quick, come here. you got to see this. Amy! Ultimately, of course, that obsession with old movies is what activates the whole narrative, as Charlie becomes obsessed by the notion of a vampire neighbour, but it also gives him the tools to overcome the evil. But in that opening scene, it's very much used to show that Charlie is stunted, infantile, and not a strong, confident man like Jerry. Ah. Mr. Vincent, I've seen all of your films, and I've found them very amusing. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and um, who are these two attractive young people? Ed Thompson. Ed. Amy Peterson. is supposed to do, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> in 1988's Fright Night Part 2, this idea is explored in even more depth, with Charlie having undergone years of therapy designed to convince him that Jerry was nothing more than a manifestation of some deeper personal trauma, being enabled by his affection for movies and his close relationship with Peter Vincent. All right, Charles. What really happened? Jerry Dandridge was a serial murderer, a cult worshipper, kidnapper. He abducted my girlfriend Amy and my friend Ed Thompson, and this triggered a defense mechanism in my brain which caused me to imagine he was a vampire. And was Jerry Dandridge a vampire? No, no, there's no such thing. How do you know? Because vampires don't exist. Having left his past, and apparently Amy, behind to go to college and lead a normal life, Fright Night Part 2 opens with an emotionally complete Charlie, albeit one who is just about holding it together through regular therapy and a supportive new girlfriend. And in fact, while the films do follow a very similar structure, another reading of the film could suggest that it's those old genre tropes and traditions, which provided heroic resolution in the first film, that are almost villainous in the sequel. By starting out with an emotionally complete character who outright rejects the events of the first film, 
Those traditional rules of vampirism act as a catalyst in regressing the hero back to that same state of emasculated infantilism that he occupied in the previous film. And, and so I got scared and I went to see Peter and of course there was a rational explanation for everything. I mean, I knew that all along. Maybe just... subconsciously you just didn't want to go out. But maybe, maybe it was the culture part. Maybe I was a little intimidated. Fear of culture. Charlie, that might also explain your fascination with low-grade melodramas. I am so proud of you. It is very hard whoa, to explore whoa, 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 your fears. Wait, wait a minute, what do you mean low-grade melodramas? Well, I mean, Bloodsuckers from Beyond isn't exactly... Oh, did you exactly... see Bloodsuckers from Beyond? No, but... Well, then you don't know what you're talking about, do you? Charlie. God, it makes me mad when people do that. I mean, you included, Alex. There happens to be some great literature from the field. Did you ever read Dracula? Oh, no. It's a great book, Alex, a great book. There I go again. Sorry. But in their similarities and their differences, both Fright Night films do something very specific in using horror tradition to try and create something new. Something better equipped to resonate with a newer, sharper, and more demanding young audience. Now, for the most part, the phrase MTV generation is used to describe the young people of the 1980s that seem to have everything at their fingertips, but were seen as apathetic or unable to pull themselves away from music videos for long enough to form a definitive culture of their own. But whether you call them the MTV generation, the me generation, Generation X, Generation Y, Generation XY, Xennials, or even Echo Boomers, one constant for kids growing up in the 1980s was their appetite for film and television that used faster editing, more contemporary music, and younger faces on screen. Turn it on! Leave it on! America! See the music you want to see! I want my MTV. Alright. I want my MTV. I want IMTV. Ow! 24 hours a day on cable TV. I want my MTV, MTV, MTV! Yeah, too much is never enough. This faster, non-linear, or post-classical Hollywood editing style boomed in the 1980s, along with films like Footloose, Flashdance, and Top Gun that featured soundtrack songs that were able to take up valuable screen time on MTV. And while 1985's Fright Night had certainly modernised vampires for younger, more cynical audiences, it did still have, and in fact relied upon having, one foot firmly in the past. In 1987 though, a new vampire flick came along that took a lot more of its cues from the MTV playbook. These creatures of the night dressed like rock stars and knew how to have a good time. Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. In the Lost Boys, young audiences, like me, had been given their first taste of a new kind of vampire. A gang of subterranean teens who came out at night to feed, party, ride around on motorcycles and hang out at the fairground causing trouble. They were fueled by not just blood, but adrenaline and Chinese food, or worms depending on who you believe, and they all lived together in a secret cave that looked like the ultimate goth nightclub. Who wouldn't want to join that gang? Of course, there are various readings of The Lost Boys, including the popular take that it uses vampirism to discuss homosexual freedom, or even the supposed dangers associated with it. 
But when considered purely as the story of a gang of young men driven underground by their community who come out at night to satiate their desires by either terrorising the local heterosexuals or, in the case of the film's lead, Michael, tempting them along to join them, it is easy to see why this is a popular read on The Lost Boys. But for me, while that interpretation does hold a lot of weight, I'm not overly keen on it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it puts a very dark and pretty hateful slant on what I always took to be a rather charming and funny final line of dialogue. One thing about living in Santa Carla I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. But more than anything else, it's just not my experience of the film. The Lost Boys came out, no pun intended, when I was about 10 years old, and I probably saw it for the first time about a year later on VHS. It quickly became my favourite film for quite a long time. And feel free to attribute my enjoyment of it to latent homosexuality if you want, but genuinely, I just believe David's gang of bloodsuckers were just cool in a way that vampires never really had been before. The idea of vampirism had always been attractive to audiences. Immortality, sexual power, and the promise of a dark and mysterious life. But in The Lost Boys, we had teenage vampires, who used all that to just hang out, pun intended, and do whatever the hell they wanted. Drink some of this, Michael. Be one of us. The Lost Boys takes the traditional idea of vampirism and truly reinvents it for the MTV generation. It may utilise some of the original rules established through gothic literature and representation in film and television, but it only really does so to ground the audience in something familiar. Aesthetically, it uses modern filmmaking, modern music and modern costumes, all of course informed by modern gothic style, to create something new. And in addition to setting a template that would be revisited again and again across film and TV, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to From Dust Till Dawn, the main thing that it did was something very specific to the monstrous villains of the 1980s. It took bad guys and made them cool. <laughs> we'll return after these messages. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and welcome to Film Bastards, a podcast where three friends, two of them married and two of them podcasting life partners, chat everything from new releases, trailers, news, and an eclectic mix of other film goodies over oh, many, many, many tangents. You can find them by searching your podcast provider or check them out on Twitter and Instagram by searching Film Bastards. You never know, you might like it. And if you don't, well, we don't really give a f. Are you tired of film podcasts where the hosts exist in a constant, blissful state of agreement? I mean, the main, the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. Well, you're in luck. Let me introduce you to Chinstroker and Punter. One is an ex-film student with a penchant for David Lynch and art cinema. The other is a man on the street. Listen in perplexed and horrified terror we tear apart one film a week. It just really is It's isn't. not visually striking. No. Just, just getting confirmation. It's just in, that's the third time though. I mean, I must, is this on? You can find us at csvsp.libson.com. So come and share the victory. If you could fuck any man in film, who would it be and why? My answer is Lance Henriksen. Oh. You, you wouldn't tell. He looks like somebody... <laughs> he looks like somebody who can keep a secret.
It's very difficult to get into a discussion about the evolution of 1970s and 80s horror without it rapidly turning into a discussion about gender, particularly when considering the more notable academic text around the subject. In fact, anyone who's done any level of reading on horror cinema will be familiar with names like Carol Clover and Barbara Creed, as well as concepts like The Final Girl, The Monstrous Feminine, and how these things contribute to the idea that the late 1970s and early 80s were a real tipping point for the female victim character. In the late 1970s, films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and Alien had established female leads that were tougher and more actively in control of the narrative. These were women that, if not able to vanquish the threats they faced, they could at very least escape or save themselves. to survive provided a chance for these heroines to grow in their respective sequels, although Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 does have a different final girl, as audiences became more used to seeing women that not only fought back, but in some cases became even more deadly than their pursuers. Every day, on every street, in every city, women are insulted, abused. extreme end of genre cinema, movies like I Spit on Your Grave and Miss 45 Angel of Vengeance introduced women that blurred the lines between right and wrong. These films put violent revenge in the hands of their female leads, taking them out of victimhood, beyond heroism and into vigilantism. And by suggesting that this was a path that was justified, they allowed audiences to not only enjoy, but be complicit in that violence. I spit on your grave. This woman will soon cut, chop, break, and burn five men beyond recognition. And there isn't a jury in this country that will convict her. And according to Carol Clover, equipping female characters this way distorts or even alters what it is that makes them women, noting that they represent not boyishness or girlishness, but monstrous gender, a gender that splatters, rips at the seams, and then is sutured together again as something much messier than male or female. But as the women of horror were becoming more physical, active, and in control of their respective narratives, something was also changing with their male antagonists. It had to. If Lieutenant Ellen Ripley was able to defeat a race of acid-blooded xenomorphs in the middle of deep space, twice, what chance did a bloke who could be killed by garlic have? In the UK, Hammer Film Productions, which had built its name on more traditional gothic characters and productions, had seen the writing on the wall during the 70s, and had at least attempted to diversify its offering. In Beyond Hammer, British cinema since 1970, James Rose says that the studio's death rattle began in 1970 with the release of The Vampire Lovers, which attempted to introduce eroticism to spice up the genre by taking advantage of looser censorship rules. Come with us if you dare into a twilight world of unspeakable horror. You must die. Everybody must die. Sample, if you dare, the deadly passion of the vampire lovers. The vampire lovers. Perverted creatures of the night find their victims everywhere.
the unsuspecting merrymakers in glittering ballrooms with their young and tender throats. The sleeping beauties whose troubled dreams turn into real terrifying nightmares. For God's sake, save her! <laughs> Beware the cold caress, the kiss that kills. Beware the vampire lovers. He adds that while it's pretty clear that in these final nine years of Hammer, the studio was motivated purely by trying to stay afloat, it is generally noted that this period resulted in some of its freshest and most innovative work, in films like Hands of the Ripper in 1971 and Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter in 1974. From such readings, he says, it is possible to suggest that Hammer's final films had the potential to define a new, positive direction for British horror film to take. But for all their gore, sex, violence and integrity, they did not. Instead, it would be the emerging strain of American horror cinema that would have the most effect on the few British horror films made and released during the 70s. In the US, Universal had been attempting to broaden the appeal of its classic monster line in the 40s and 50s, but by the 60s and 70s, the studio had left these characters out to pasture, instead focusing on big-budget blockbusters like Spartacus and then later Jaws, as well as high-profile Hitchcock dramas like The Birds and Torn Curtain. Of course, most historians would count Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960 as the death knell for more traditional horror, which, along with Michael Powell's Peeping Tom from the same year, is the film most often credited with establishing what we now know as the slasher film. But while appetite for slasher movies grew in the years that followed, thanks to Mario Bava, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, Bob Clark, John Carpenter, and of course Italian giallo cinema, it was the 1980s that really stepped up to fill the gap. The decade began strong, with two bumper years for slasher movies that included Friday the 13th, Maniac, and Prom Night in 1980, and then the burning, my Bloody Valentine, Happy Birthday to Me, and Hell Night in 1981, to name just a few. That year also saw sequels for Friday the 13th and Halloween, as well as the first ever slasher movie parody, Student Bodies. Hello, it's me, the heavy breather from every horror film you've ever seen. You know me, first I terrorize my victim by the telephone. <laughs> then I climb the stairs to surprise my victims. Why do they always live upstairs? The movie's called Student Bodies, so I picked the typical American high school. I'm into murder myself, and student bodies are gonna be everywhere. <laughs> See Student Bodies, a killer comedy. Slasher movies were big business, and in Friday the 13th, Halloween, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the genre had found its first truly iconic monsters, Monsters that were grounded in the gritty world of real-life serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Edmund Kemper and Ed Gein. And the success of these characters didn't go unnoticed by the rest of Hollywood, as studios everywhere started to look for the next Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers or Leatherface to hang their very own franchise on. dominance of the slasher film over the early 1980s, which started with films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween and Friday the 13th, led to a slew of imitators and attempts to adapt the Killer Stalks Teenage Victims template however possible. One of the most obvious ways to do this was to tie the killings to a particular date or holiday. So with Halloween and Friday the 13th already taken, we got Mother's Day in 1980, New Year's Evil in 1980 and My Bloody Valentine in 1981. It's a bad time, this time of year. How many times is he gonna tell this story? Don't let him tell it. I love fairy tales. This ain't no fairy tale, little girl. If you don't take it seriously, 
You're a fool! Look, Landers, you gotta get a lot of exercise if you're gonna grapple with Gretchen. Oh, yeah? Well, I got a Valentine for her that she's never gonna forget. In this town on Valentine's Day, everybody loses their heart. Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead, and so are you. My bloody Valentine. Birthdays were no safe haven either, with Happy Birthday to Me and Bloody Birthday in 81 and Sweet 16 in 83. And following in the snowy footsteps of Black Christmas in 1974, there was Christmas Evil to All a Good Night, Don't Open Till Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night and its four sequels, plus Elves, Better Watch Out and many, many more. This Christmas, Santa's <laughs> going to make everyone happy. <laughs> the grown-ups and the kids. The non-believers and the screamers. And this Christmas, you better believe in Santa, or he'll slay you. Merry Christmas, Frank. Christmas Evil, the night he dropped in. This simple trick allowed slasher movies to develop a backstory for killers, set up a basic plot device, or even just try and set the films apart from one another. The films were cheap to make, and thanks to home video, were making money hand over fist. But with the market becoming increasingly saturated, audiences were becoming harder to impress. And so, having pretty much exhausted the available real-world influences and national holidays, horror movie monsters took a page out of the book of the more traditional monsters they had once replaced. They took on mythical origin stories, displayed otherworldly abilities, and developed almost fairy tale weaknesses. I know you're there, Freddy. You think you was gonna get away from me? I know you too well now, Freddy. No. You die. It's too late, Kruger. I know the secret now. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. I want my mother and friend again. What? I take back every bit of energy I gave you. You're nothing. All of the more successful icons of horror cinema that were born or boomed in the 1980s got progressively more fantastical as time went on. Friday the 13th's Jason Voorhees, who started life as an angry mother, quickly became a supernatural son who, like Halloween's Michael Myers, became more and more unkillable with each sequel, to the point where he was sent to hell in part 9, only to somehow be cryogenically frozen and return to terrorise another planet 500 years into the future in part 10. But as outlandish, or some might say ridiculous, as the Friday the 13th, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, Child's Play and Hellraiser sequels became over time, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is perhaps the most interesting case study. Certainly in how it successfully rides the wave of 1980s pop culture and manages to seep into pretty much every medium that exists at the time. Once again, foolish friends, Freddy Krueger is on your phone. Dial this number now. I've got some tales to tell. Freddy's favorite bedtime stories. <laughs> Dead time stories. All brand new and straight from my boiler room to your home. It's Freddy Krueger on your phone. So dial this number now if you dare. Tell him Freddy sent you. $2 the first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Children, get your parents' permission before you dial. Unlike Friday the 13th and Halloween at least, the central antagonist of A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, started out from a place of fantasy. A real-life child killer, an implied molester, who terrorised the town of Springwood in the 1960s, Krueger was hunted down by the parents of the town and burned alive in his boiler room lair, only to find a way back years later through the dreams of their sleeping children. 
According to Kenneth Muir in his 2007 book, Horror Films of the 1980s, it's this central premise which makes A Nightmare on Elm Street such a typical illustration of the fears and concerns of 1980s America, as it hit the halfway point between Reagan's consecutive terms. He summarises Reagan's administration as a time of conflict between illusion and reality, adding that this is precisely the space within which movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street and Hellraiser exist. Muir goes on to say that specifically, the Elm Street series issues a direct warning about the dangers of the yuppie lifestyle of the day, which favoured living for the moment and dealing with the financial, ethical or legal consequences later. Elm Street, he says, is a literal reading of the theme that the sins of the father are visited upon the heads of the children. In this case, the parents of suburban Elm Street have rid themselves of a particularly nasty child molester named Freddy Krueger, but they have done so illegally, so that Freddy has been granted license to return. Did they put him away? Oh, the lawyers got fat and the judge got famous, but somebody forgot to sign the search warrant in the right place and Krueger was free just like that. What did you do, Mother? A bunch of us parents tracked him down after they let him out. We found him in an old abandoned boiler room where he used to take his kids. Go on. Took gasoline. We poured it all around the place and made a trail of it out the door. Then lit the whole thing up and watched it burn. In terms of the Nightmare on Elm Street films themselves, there's a very clear trajectory that the films follow that was reflected not only in their box office returns, but the wider impact they had on pop culture. The first film, which was passed on by a number of studios before being snapped up by Bob Shea at New Line Cinema, was written and directed by Wes Craven, the man behind Last House on the Left, one of the most influential slasher movies of the early 70s. One of the most cited fun facts about that time was that apparently the one studio that was interested in producing the film was Disney, but they wanted Craven to consider a more family-friendly version of the film that would be more suited to their audience. Now, in hindsight, that seems ridiculous, but when you consider Disney's live-action output in the 1980s, The Watcher in the Woods in 80, Dragon Slayer in 81, Something Wicked This Way Comes in 83, as well as their animated fantasy The Black Cauldron in 1985, you can start to see where a creepy old man who scares kids in their dreams might fit right in. Couple that with the more mythical origin, otherworldly abilities and fairy tale weaknesses I mentioned earlier, and honestly, I think in a weird way it might have worked. And according to Freddy actor Robert Englund, it's Kruger's fantastical defeat at the hands of his teenage victim, Nancy, which is one of the most satisfying elements of that first film. Speaking in the definitive series documentary, 2010's Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, Englund says, Nancy realizes that that's how you stop it is not to surrender to it, you know. And so that's actually, I think, a very satisfying ending. The second film, which Craven wanted nothing to do with and was overseen instead by Shea and Alone in the Dark director Jack Shoulder, is probably better known for its heavy homoerotic subtext these days. But for me, one of the other most notable things about it is the way it purposefully seems to ignore the rules of the first movie. Now, I don't think many people would argue the fact that it's an inferior film, but in giving Freddy more screen time and more to say... Yeah, I, I'm here to help you. Help yourself, fucker! <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 Freddy's Revenge pushes the franchise in a direction that audiences were ready for, and ultimately ended up being a massive success for the studio. The first film had already seen Freddy become something of a cult figure, and people wanted more of him. And while it may not have been the path his creator might have wanted... Bob Shea was more than happy with the result. According to its director, Jack Shoulder, if Elm Street 2 could make 70% of what its predecessor had made, it would have been deemed a success. But, he says, it ended up doing 150% of what the first one did. Freddy may have been running around in the real world with demon-faced dogs and talking too much, but it seemed like audiences didn't care. And all of a sudden, Bob Shea's struggling New Line Cinema had a massive franchise on its hands. And as Shoulder puts it in 2010's Never Sleep Again, while it may have strayed from the formula, the film set a course for the studio, the franchise, and his own career that might otherwise never have happened. I give New Line a lot of credit 
for um, the success of the series because what they were willing to do was to not just do the same thing over and over again. I'm, I'm proud that I did the film. The film really was the film that gave me a, a career as a film director. Despite that success though, New Line Cinema were keen to course correct the mythos of their series and brought Craven back to create an initial script with Bruce Wagner for the third film. This script was then redrafted to be a little less dark by Frank Darabont and director Chuck Russell. And by all accounts, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors was a difficult film to get made as Russell saw the potential for making something that had a great balance of horror, comedy and fantasy but the studio seemed more intent on getting it back to its slasher roots. Russell's vision, thankfully, eventually won out, and once again, New Line Cinema had an even bigger hit on their hands. Freddy's Revenge had taken $29 million at the US box office, but Dream Warriors took home $44.8 million. Perhaps more importantly though, Dream Warriors was the moment where Freddy truly crossed over into popular culture. Where once there were movies, posters and maybe a few t-shirts, now there were talking Freddy dolls, board games, alarm clocks, a fan club, a 900 number, and an album recorded by Freddy and the Elm Street group called Freddy's Greatest Hits. August 1988 saw the release of the fourth film in the series, The Dream Master, directed by Rennie Harlan, which once again upped the box office income to $49 million and deployed an MTV-style aesthetic to create even more pop culture crossover opportunities. There's a saying they have on Elm Street. One good nightmare deserves another. Finally, someone's ready for Freddy. In 1989, New Line Cinema put out an Elm Street merchandise catalogue that included the talking Freddy doll, plus a makeup kit, water squirting spitballs and puppets, and a flip face Freddy digital watch. That same year, Freddy made his first video game appearance on the Nintendo Entertainment System with LJN Toys, A Nightmare on Elm Street game. And it was around this time, people started to wonder, who are these films being sold to? And if there was any doubt, it was squashed with the release of a new Freddy-branded action figure that year, which creators Matchbox intended to be the first of many. Lights, camera, action! There's a man called Max, he's in the special effects, special effects. Hey Fred, thought you were dead, put your face on, Jason. Special effects, special effects, going werewolf to the caveman. Look 
spectacular, spectacular. Coming soon, creature from the Black Lagoon. Watch out, my man coming out of your tummy. Yeah. The alien, get your hands on the man called Max. He's got special effects, special effects. Max FX costumes, figures, and special FX theater, each sold separately. New from Matchbox. Max FX would be a series of toys that centered around a character called Max Miracle, who was a master of makeup effects and who could magically adopt the abilities of the characters he became to fight crime. So who better to launch the toy line than a child murderer? The series was due to feature other, more recent iconic screen monsters like Jason Voorhees and the alien Xenomorph, presumably imbuing Max with the power to murder sexually provocative teenagers and impregnate John Hurt. But it also added more classic monsters to the line, like the Wolfman, Frankenstein and Dracula. However, ahead of its release, Matchbox decided to push out the aforementioned Talking Freddy doll, marked for children of eight years and up, prompting the American Family Association to call on consumers and parents to boycott not just the toy, but the manufacturer and any stores that might stock their products. And while a few toys crept out and were snapped up by collectors, Matchbox was forced to withdraw both the Talking Freddy doll and its whole plans for Max FX. But the fact that these toys got that far and that a company as experienced and established as Matchbox would use Freddy to launch this new line, does give you some idea of just how pervasive and accepted the character was in pop culture at that time. Now I have a story that I'd like to tell about this guy you all know. Dream Warriors and the Dream Master had allowed Freddy to dip a bladed finger into all sorts of other medium, from toys and games to music and even comics. In August 1989, as New Line geared up for the release of A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, Marvel Comics put out Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street, a black and white series that took the story away from the films, but didn't shy away from the violence and gore that made them popular. After coming under fire from anti-violence groups in the US after just the second issue though, Marvel decided to cancel the comic and the license moved over to indie label Innovation Publishing, who put out a series of books more closely aligned with the release of each subsequent film. A television series, Freddy's Nightmares, ran on television in the US from October 1988 until March 1990, with eight double episode VHS tapes released on Brave World Home Video for us audiences in the UK. Freddy's back. On video in six all-new nightmares that will tear your sleepless nights to shreds. Robert Englund is Freddy Krueger in six new Elm Street nightmares. Ready for rental at your video library now. Spend six nights of terror with Freddy. Despite a strong start with a Toby Hooper-directed origin story delving into the early life of Freddy, the series became just another anthology show, with Krueger appearing as a jokey, cryptkeeper-esque host. It was ultimately cancelled after two 22-episode seasons. A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child had only managed to pull in 25 million at the US box office, half of what The Dream Master had done. And while there was some pickup for Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare in 1991, buoyed by 3D and the promise that this would be Kruger's last stand, it was clear that the character had kind of lost his allure. But according to Adam Rockoff, in Going to Pieces, the rise and fall of the slasher film, it was the wider pop culture saturation of slasher movies that had collectively killed the genre off. The once fertile plains of cinematic horror, he says, had been left fallow by a blight of inferior sequels, hateful remakes, and straight-to-video trash. By the close of the decade, the Halloween series was into its fifth film. Friday the 13th had hit number eight and was itself promising to kill off its popular antagonist in number nine. Newer franchises like Child's Play had provided some fresh ideas, but after that series had its name dragged through the mud after being wrongfully connected to the tragic murder of two-year-old James Bulger, it was very much felt that slashers had had their day. Kids. In the UK and US, conservative politics of the 1980s had given a voice to the creative left to speak out against the selfish and separatist agendas of our respective governments. It was a time where greed was considered by our leaders to be good. 
but this greed came at a cost. And by exposing this, we were given a whole new take on corporate evil that was threaded through film and television, and yet weirdly reflective of the people who were actually running its studios. Whether they were in our cities, our society, our military, or outer space, this new wave of villains was often a front for something much bigger and darker, some giant faceless corporation we couldn't possibly hope to fight alone. Whether they were in our cities, our society, our military, or outer space, this new wave of villains was often a front for something much bigger and darker, some giant faceless corporation we couldn't possibly hope to fight alone, a very real threat even when dropped into very unreal circumstances. For a new generation of audiences, spoiled by the seemingly endless choice provided by home video and 24-hour television stations, beaming high-energy pop music videos and animation directly into its brain, film genres that had made the most of the same formulas for years were being forced to change. The gothic architecture of the 1950s and 60s had been torn down brick by brick during the 1970s, thanks to a new breed of young, vibrant directors who were influenced and obsessed by the shock of the real and villains who felt much closer to home, or at least could be given rock star credibility to chime with the demands of the MTV generation. Audiences too became infatuated with those villains, and in the decade of consumption wanted the faces of their favourite characters on t-shirts, toys and lunchboxes, somehow creating heroes of cannibals and child killers. As demand grew, audiences expected to see those villains everywhere, on their televisions, in comic books, on records and in their music videos, and with so much content to create for those hungry fans, creators themselves were forced to step back into the realms of fantasy to keep their cannibals and child killers interesting, rebuilding the same architectures that they were once responsible for destroying. Ultimately, of course, all that was unsustainable. The bad guys who had been born of a realist response to malaise with fantasy horror soon became figures of fun themselves, in the same way as those that came before them. They had pervaded every avenue of pop culture, to the point where even their creators seemed obsessed with laying them to rest, even if they didn't stay dead for too long in the years that followed. But from Gordon Gecko to Freddy Krueger, the 1980s gave us an unparalleled rogues gallery of pop culture icons. They may not have replaced Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy or Frankenstein's monster, but they absolutely earned the right to stand beside them in the pantheon of characters we love and hate in equal measure.